Well, good morning and welcome back to the book of Matthew. We come today to sermon number five of six sermons from Jesus in this series that Matthew was presenting to us in chapters 17 and 18 of his gospel. And I find that these sermons have been very sobering and very convicting. And if you have not been challenged by these, perhaps you're not really listening and absorbing them. I have no choice, because i got to preach these. And boy, they have been affecting me deeply. And I would offer that it's a lost opportunity if we don't really attend to these sermons as Jesus continues to open up the kingdom of heaven. We need to absorb these truths and with open hands say, Jesus, what do I do with these? Transform me. Implant them deeply in my heart and transform my soul. Now today we come to a big question that is this. What do we do and how do we respond when there is sin in the community? Specifically in the church community. When someone is headlong pursuing sin, we have an errant brother or sister who is pursuing sin or a lifestyle that is antithetical to the reality of the gospel, to the truths of the gospel. They're headlong pursuing with determination and hardness. Now I'm not talking about the sin with which we all struggle. That sin that nags us and drags us down and drives us to our knees. You know, sins that we, we even share with trusted ones in our lives for care and for prayer. The sin that, that, that Paul talks about in Romans 7 when he says, I do the very things I don't want to do. I sin in, in, in ways in which I don't want to sin. I know better. I don't want to pursue these things. But i got a battle going on in my life between the spirit and the flesh. We're not talking about that kind of sin. We're talking about sin pursued by a brother or sister without repentance, justifying, explaining away, stubbornly ignoring truth. And usually it's someone trying to find life in uh, a compromised or corrupt ways, in corrupt human pursuits, looking for life apart from Jesus, trying to satisfy needs that only Jesus can satisfy. So the text breaks out like this. There are two major portions. The first is how to respond to the sins of a brother in verses 15 through 17. And then corollary truths from Jesus that I call Christ followers' impact on heaven and earth. Christ followers' impact on heaven and earth. So we pick it up in Matthew chapter 18. Before we do, let me pray. Father, once again, we thank you for this incredible capturing of your life and teaching, Lord Jesus, through the pen of Matthew, how you inspired him, you gifted him, you stirred him, Lord, to record these events, and today, 2,000 years later, we continue to feed on these truths and understand how the kingdom of heaven works and how you have brought salvation and freedom and life again to humanity. So we give you this text, we give you this time, speak to us, we pray. Meet us where we are. Some come today, I know, suffering deeply. Others come on a mountaintop, Lord, and every place on the spectrum in between. But I thank you that you are more than able to meet us and speak to us wherever we are. We pray that you would do so in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Matthew 18, we pick it up in verse 15, where Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Another light sermon from Jesus here. (laughs) So we begin this text with a little bit of source controversy You'll notice that the translation that I've been using recently, the ESV, uses the phrase against you. Now, that was found in later manuscripts, but not in the earlier, better manuscripts. The NASB and some other translations omit it, and Luke's account in chapter 17 of his gospel account uh, omits against you altogether. It's not there in any of the manuscripts. So the weight of evidence seems to point to its omission, but I don't want us to get hung up on that because either way, the fact of the matter is, or the heart of this teaching, is winning back a brother who was in sin. And Jesus says it's a matter between Jesus' followers who really care for one another and someone who has walked away from Jesus and into grievous sin. And so when a brother or sister pursues sin, it matters says Jesus we don't just let them go and dismiss it we don't let this person go uncared for and unwarned and unpursued and of course our individual individualistic culture would disagree with it no what the person wants that's what's important what every individual wants they know what's best for themselves they know how to find life they know how to find contentment and satisfaction And so we often worry about being busybodies and we fear accusation that we're being controlling or we're being nosy. But Jesus says, when one of my sheep is headlong racing to a cliff's edge, you go after him. My under-shepherds intercede and seek to head off disaster. And so this is true in matters where perhaps one is pursuing false teaching. They've latched on to some kind of pseudo-gospel or some kind of Eastern mysticism or whatever pursuing false teaching. Maybe it's someone living unfaithfully or immorally, someone living in foulness or hurting others. It's the type of sin that when someone's life goes beyond that temptation and attraction and struggle with which we deal on a daily basis, and it's becoming a lifestyle for someone. You know, if I have a brother who's struggling with pornography and he's willing to share it, we pray together. And I encourage that brother. I inquire and come alongside to help fight the battle. This friend is confessing. This friend is repenting and longing for freedom. But if I have a friend who's turned himself over to pornography and is pursuing it as a lifestyle and pursuing adulterous living and thinking and justifying it, I confront, says Jesus. I go to him and I confront. So we're talking about sin that is clearly and consistently contrary to Jesus' commands. Sin that no healthy, no vital and flourishing church can allow to go on in its community. The church community can't tolerate it without denying who we are as God's people. Martin Luther said, of course, the Christian church has weaknesses in her too. 
So we have to get beyond the idea that if we go to somebody and we confront somebody who is pursuing sin, who's given themselves over to it, we have to get beyond the idea that Satan's going to hit us with that says, you have no right, you're a bunch of sinful people. Absolutely. We're a group of sinful people saved by the grace and work of Jesus Christ. But yet we cannot tolerate the kind of shameless, unrepentant sin that some may fall into. And Luther goes on to say in his quote, she, meaning the church, does not sin willingly or with malice against God and His Word. And so Jesus says the right response to this is to initiate by confronting privately with the intention of restoration. And it begins with humility, a spirit of gentleness. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Humility. Saturated with the hope of repentance and restoration. Undergirded with the desire of winning one back to the family. Now, where do we get this? Where do we... Where do we get the resources to do it with this kind of wisdom? I know I don't have it. My propensity is to get ticked off and dismissive in my flesh. So where do we go? We go to Jesus. We go to prayer. Before we confront somebody, before we, before we seek to intercede in the life of this one headed toward a cliff, we must saturate ourselves with Jesus in prayer and humility. And then, Jesus says, you go privately. There's no need to tell others. There's no need to even go and tell the pastors and elders unless you really need some kind of wisdom or perspective or some kind of help in preparing to do this. You keep it private. And keep it as private as possible. And let it not become an occasion for gossip, even Christian gossip that... Let's face it, we sometimes uh, partake of under the guise of prayer requests, right? The great Christian method of gossip, prayer requests. So we raise things even in small groups for prayer with great wisdom and tact. So our goal is to win a brother and a sister back to relationship which was broken by sin and rejoin the family of life. What a glorious task that God has given us. This is powerful stuff when you think about it. Now the magic of the story of the prodigal son is not about the prodigal finally getting his act together and then coming back and becoming a good son again, becoming an obedient one. The greatness of the prodigal son story is not about being like the angry, legalistic, self-absorbed good son. I've heard it taught that way many times. Don't be like the prodigal, be like the good son. But I'm thinking, wait a minute, that good son, he's cranky pants. He's pitching a fit. So that's not what the story's about. The magic of that story is the restoration. The restoration extended by the father. When that son, at the end of himself, comes back and he says, Father, I am so sorry. I have been so foolish. I'm not even worthy to be a day laborer in your household. 
of a friend who decades ago gave himself into adultery. He carried on an affair for quite some time, and when confronted, he fought it for a while, but eventually he broke and he repented. And he had to suffer a lot of consequences as a result of his sin and his actions. And he thought his life and ministry and marriage and family were all lost. And when he was confronted, not by me, it was a humble but very strong confrontation. And ultimately, his response was humble and broken. He owned his sin, he accepted the consequences, and it took a lot of years. But eventually, the Spirit put his life back together, gave him a ministry again, and he was restored and ultimately became a gifted shepherd of people once again. You see, that's what our Jesus does. And that's the hope here. When he says, go after that one who's pursuing sin. Go after that one who is headed for the cliff. Now, what if a brother or sister does not listen? Jesus is very clear on what next. He says, bring to bear the wisdom and perspective of others. He says, bring one to two others. Why? First, so you proceed with integrity and understanding. If a brother or sister doesn't turn, you bring in others to bring additional perspective. Maybe you don't have it quite right. Maybe God needs to bring a different word to this person. Maybe they need to feel the weight of two or three people coming to them. And with another person, facts or lack thereof can be better established, perhaps, and verified and an accurate assessment confirmed. And this continues to pursue the ultimate goal of restoration. And there's a seriousness, there's a care expressed when two or three come, they have the same perspective, the same concern, the same exhortation to turn. And it also helps the original one seeking rescue from digging in, right? Because we like to be right, especially when we take a risk like that. We want to be right. And we want to be the ones to, to convict the other person of what they're doing and how wrong it is. And it's a short distance from humility to pride, even anger. And so as we come with others, that helps provide a balance to make sure that one does not get angry over the other and to be a foil when it does happen. So going with brothers or additional sisters tempers and it brings balance and added wisdom. It brings additional perspective. And when two or three come, it opens up the reality that what this person is doing hurts a lot of people. So many people caught in sin, right? You've probably heard it before. Well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't it okay that I pursue what I want? I've been giving myself away all my life, and now I want to pursue what I want and do what I want to do. But the fact is, sin is not unlike a bus crash. If you crash a, crash a bus, pain and injury come not just to the driver and the one in the front row, but everyone on that bus. Everyone who loves and cares for that person gets hurt. Family and friends, church community, neighbors, co-workers, all who love that person are wounded as well. And it's good for the one in sin to feel that weight. We need to feel that weight. And the Spirit will often use that weight to stir repentance. 
And then Jesus says, what if a brother or sister still does not listen? So he raises the urgency level yet again. He increases the urgency level from, or increases the audience from two to three to the whole church family. The local community to which that person is associated. Years ago, I was in a church in which a man's sin was brought before the body. And rightly, most people had no idea about it. And when the elder spoke and publicly confronted and exhorted this person, there was a hush and a weight and a a somber mood that fell upon the church. It wasn't a matter of gossip. It wasn't a matter of interest or entertainment. It was an issue of great weight because a life was hanging in the balance. And all the people on that person's bus were wounded and waiting to know what was going to happen. So when the whole church experiences the gravity of sin, the church experiences the fear of the Lord and the redemption of God's holiness. So once a word is given, what do we do now? What do we do? Well, Jesus doesn't say it overtly, but I think the weight of Scripture says we wait. Just like God waits. So patiently. We wait and we pray. After this third attempt and opportunity for repentance and restoration, we, we pray and we bow down before Jesus and we say, Jesus, save this life. Bring this one back. And then at the appropriate time, Jesus doesn't say how long, but at the appropriate time, let the wise in the church advise and pray and confer. God, may the one in sin repent. And when that time comes, when wisdom is fulfilled, Jesus gives us really a shocking word, a very surprising word, because he then says, I want you to treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile. And what he does here is he cites old Jewish thinking and culture. He says, ostracize that one from the church. Just as you exclude tax collectors and Gentiles from the Jewish community. Now, wait a minute. We've seen Jesus time and time again embrace Gentiles, right? All kinds of salvation works and miracles for Gentiles. We've also seen Jesus not only embrace tax collectors, but he's called them to be his disciples, i.e. Matthew. So we know Jesus loves tax collectors and he loves Gentiles. So why is he now saying ostracize them? Well, I think what he's doing is this. He's saying, just as you used to exclude tax collectors and Gentiles from the community, now I want you to take that wrong action and I want you to apply it rightly. So he's using them as an illustration of shunning He's not condoning their cultural practice, but he's saying take this wrong action and now apply it correctly in a church context. This is when you shun people. Not because of their vocation, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their background, not because of their past sin. You shun them because they won't repent and be restored to the community. The church cannot tolerate... Oops. 
I happen to have a bottle that doesn't have a flat bottom to it. Trade you, thanks. So Jesus says, this one who's unrepentant, you cut them off from corporate fellowship. It's hard to do. Now, you still can connect with this person outside of the church community. We certainly don't cut them off from day-to-day interpersonal relationship. You can continue to reach out, appeal to repentance, but they are no longer welcomed in the church community without repentance because it's not safe. It's not healthy for the church community. It's like a cancer needing removal. It's painful. It's painful. When a surgeon goes in to remove cancer, it's painful to the patient. But that one must undergo pain in order to experience healing. And the church must undergo pain in order to experience healing from such an event. So the cancer needs to be removed. Now, this cannot be allowed to raise any sense of pride in us. There's an implicit warning here. This is a sobering and stunning event. should silence us because it's important. It's weighty. It's a matter of heaven and earth, life and death. But Jesus says, church, you put yourself into a precarious position to ignore it. Because a brother or sister lost in sin is in grave danger. And that one's church community is at risk. And he or she is to be pursued with humility and strength and abundant prayer for repentance and restoration. And churches functioning according to Jesus' guidelines have his endorsement. And there's a promise of vitality as difficult and painful and troubling as such events might be. So Jesus has given us clear direction, and now he takes a turn to a text that we often tend to look at very much out of context. And it certainly has broader application than the particular context here, but we need to start with it in its context as Jesus delivered this to his disciples. So Jesus has given us clear direction, and he now explains the transcendent impact of such matters. And he gives us a striking word, and it looks like this in verse 18, where he continues, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Very, very famous and oft-quoted verse, right? It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful promise. But we need to start by keeping it in its context here. So Jesus begins this portion of his sermon by saying, Truly, literally, amen. This is important. Surely and certainly it's an overt indicator that this is not only a part of my preceding word, but it's a very important landing point of my preceding word. So 15 through 17 then become the controlling context for these verses. And what he's saying is that 
that heaven mirrors earth in a properly functioning church, properly functioning church community. So a church community that is truly that is truly devoted to Jesus, keeping its eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, coming in worship and repentance, not perfect, there's no such thing, but a church that is truly worshiping at the feet of Jesus and pursuing Him is a church that when it forgives, in heaven that person is forgiven as well. We're all priests. That's why Jesus calls us Priest, did you know that? You don't have to have a priest to connect you to God. We have the great high priest Jesus. And he has made us priests under him, meaning we are all connected to the living God. We can all take others and help usher them into the presence of God. And so Jesus is saying that when the church listens to and present, a rep, or when, a, when a brother or sister listens to the church and repents and, and, and is renewed, he is loosed by the church's pardon in Jesus' name. In other words, repentance and forgiveness is the loosing of which Jesus speaks and it equals forgiveness in heaven. But the one who rejects, who steadfastly refuses to repent, and refuses the discipline for sin is bound by guilt. And this binding, says Jesus, is ratified in heaven. That's how serious this is. How big this is. So when God's people take Jesus' commands seriously, the Father backs up His church. And next week, as a matter of fact, as we continue in this series of Jesus' sermons, we're going to see it illustrated by Jesus' parable and sermon number six. So church discipline done carefully and prayerfully with integrity is mirrored in heaven. And if a brother or sister is cut off from the church community for unrepentant sin, he's also cut off in the heavenly. He's estranged from God. Placing himself as Lord, not Jesus. It's sobering. And likewise, a brother or sister who has con uh, confessed, who's repented, is restored, is forgiven is equally restored in heaven. Now that's a great comfort for one struggling with a guilty conscience. Anybody here have sin? You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody here have sin from which you've repented? You've been restored, but it still nags at you. Yeah, it still nags at you, right? But what a comforting word to know that as you have been forgiven in your community, of fellow Christ followers, so you've been forgiven and loosed in heaven and restored. So my friends, you can be free. You can be free. Jesus then expands in verse 19. He says again, or furthermore, further on, He says, when my followers gather in my name and pray, things move in heaven. Gathering in devotion to Jesus and praying according to God's will and intentions absolutely moves the Father to attend and act. It matters when we pray. God invites us in to participate in the work that He's doing. He hears us. He uses us. 
He honors our spirit-saturated desires and intentions. And then Jesus takes it still deeper in verse 20. He says, when you gather to pray, I am there. I'm guiding. I'm listening. I'm encouraging. I'm helping. I'm helping you to sort out things. God loves to bring order from chaos. And when we pray, when we bring our chaos before him, he loves to take that and he says, and, and bring order out of it and say, I got this. What is confusing and and absolutely devastating to you, I've got this. And I'm going to walk you through every step of the way, and I'm going to bring order from your chaos. I'm going to bring life out of the death you're experiencing. What a thrilling reality. And so as I mentioned, while this statement I do think has broader applications, here it is specifically in the context of sin in the church. That's how critical this issue is of sin in the church, that Jesus would make a statement like this in the context of this very specific situation. And so we need to know that church discipline done carefully and prayerfully with integrity is mirrored in heaven. When Jesus' followers gather and pray in His name, things move in heaven. And that's where we need to focus as we process this truth and allow it to penetrate and transform us. You know, I don't know anybody who relishes confronting a brother or sister. Oh yeah, I love that. That is just my favorite facet of ministry, man. When I got a brother in sin, man, I love to just get right in his face. That's in my wheelhouse. Who, who wants to do that? But Jesus says we're called to do that. This is so critical. Jesus' emphasis and repetition here, I think, really help us to understand the weight of this scenario. So what do we do with this? How do we frame it and take it? And let me offer you a few thoughts here. The first thing I want us to understand, and this is in such opposition to the culture today, such opposition to our individualistic world, But the first thought is this, that confronting a brother or sister caught in sin is gracious other-seeking. Fact of the matter is, it is the most selfless thing, not maybe the most, but one of the most selfless things we can do is to confront a brother or sister who's heading to that cliff. And the world may say it's none of your business, and the person we pursue may say it's none of your business, Satan will hit us and say, what do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're a failed, sinful, unfaithful one. You have no basis to confront somebody else. And you know what? He's right. But Jesus does. Jesus calls us to be the tool of His hand, His tool of redemption. And if we don't go, who will? He calls us as His emissaries. Because, you know, winning a Christian to the gospel is just as important as winning a non-Christian to the gospel. There are a lot of Christians in this world who don't get the gospel. Just because you've confessed Jesus and been baptized doesn't mean you necessarily understand the fullness of the gospel. I'm not talking about your salvation. When you confess Jesus and you give your life to Him, you are saved. 
You become a son or daughter of the living God. But how many of us have done that and then we proceed to live out under the law? We proceed to live as if, man, I got to keep my salvation going. I got to behave. I got to do the right things. I got to do them often enough to make sure that God stays pleased with me. My friends, that's not the gospel. So winning a brother or sister to the gospel is just as important as winning a non-Christian. And so Jesus says, if someone in your community is headed for that cliff, make it your business. Gently, graciously, privately, at least at first, with all fear and trembling, reason with that one. It's likely to be very difficult, but a life is to be spared. How can we not go? You see, when the church community is involved, it is time to be our brother's keeper and to bear one another's burdens. And Jesus lays this out, not as an option, a possibility, but as a responsibility. It's protective of the individual, it's protective of others close to him or her, and it's protective of the church. When we talk about bearing one another's burdens, we always, I think, go to helping somebody when they are struggling with something, disease or broken relationship or money problems or whatever the case may be. And that is absolutely true. But you know what? When Jesus talks about bearing one another's burdens, he's also talking about going to that brother or sister and holding them up and saying, what are you doing? You're not going to find life here. And the consequences are going to be awful. Won't you confess and turn and repent? So bearing one another's burdens is not just helping when people hurt, but also when they put themselves on the path of great trouble. Secondly, failing to confront sin in the church is to harm the church. If we turn away from unrepentant sin that is clearly and consistently contrary, we allow the cancer in the church to go untreated. It threatens others, particularly the weak and the more vulnerable in the community. Because if they see one, well, he's doing it, she's doing it, it must be okay. This temptation that I'm fighting against... Well, my goodness, if that person, that, that upstanding person in the church community is pursuing that, then it must be okay for me. You see, we're protecting the weaker, the less mature, the more vulnerable, who might likewise be tempted. So false teaching and commitment to immoral living, unfaithfulness, these things tolerated soon become embraced. These things tolerated soon become embraced. That's why Israel was not actually monotheistic until about 400 years before Jesus. Because they tolerated the peoples and the pagan gods of others in the land, and they began to embrace those pagan gods and embrace those corrupt worship practices. Embracing the superstition, even for a time, the child sacrifice. Before God said enough and sent His people into exile in Babylon. To paraphrase the great preacher and commentator Matthew Henry, we care for each other in our weaknesses, we confront each other in our wickedness, all to the goal of growth and grace, love, maturity, mercy, and restoration. So you see, a church that disciplines when needed is a church that is vital, and it will be proven to be more loving in the long run. When a church is proclaiming love but ignoring sin, not love is it do you love your kid by letting your child run out into the street 
Did I love my son by forbidding him from jumping on the roof that time he wanted to do that? Of course not. I loved him by saying, get off the roof. Don't go there. Church will not be vital when it masquerades as loving but ignores sin. And finally this morning, Jesus gives great weight to the prayers of even the smallest groups within his church. Isn't that a beautiful reality? Dr. Henrietta Mears once quipped, Jesus made this promise because he knew that's about how many people could be expected to show up to a prayer meeting. But Jesus wants us to know that prayer groups have special promises. A little tiny Christ-centered group has the great privilege of Jesus' presence. Men, women, adults, children, healthy, infirm, vital, struggling, it doesn't matter. When you gather in Jesus' name, guess who's there with you? The Lord Jesus Himself. And He hears you because you are a temple of God. So parents and grandparents, pray for your young ones. Industry people, grab a friend and pray. Pray for your co-workers. Pray for your company. Teachers, get with a fellow faculty member. Pray for your school and its students. Walk with a friend. Pray for your neighborhoods. Couples, pray for your marriage. Pray for your children. Pray for your neighborhood. If you don't have a spouse or you don't have a spouse that will pray with you, find a friend who will. Because Jesus is there. Do you notice in the last several weeks that um, Jesus has made a big deal of the small people, the little people, the hurting people, the marginalized and whatnot. And now he's making a big deal out of little groups that will come together. We like big, don't we? We want to be big. We love big Thousands. How big is your church? Oh, it's thousands. How many tickets did you sell? Thousands. We love big. Nobody's impressed when they say, how many come to church? Ah, 10, 12. Oh, that's cool. Read, oh my goodness, that's pretty pathetic. But you know what? Jesus... Jesus loves the little groups because it's a group's direction, it's a group's focus, not its size, that gets the promise. Little groups gathered in His name receive great weight and care with Him. And so in the end, we take one moving off into sin very seriously, with great humility and great care. And we go with the promise that Jesus gives the prayers of His little bands great attention and importance, all for the vitality of His church all for the thriving of His people. So let's enter in, shall we? Let's stand and sing right now as we close today.